Travis Wingfield. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. I know there's a lot riding on it, but it's all psychological. Just got to stay in a positive frame of mind. You are Locked On Dolphin, your daily podcast on the Miami Dolphin, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. All right, Miami! What's up, Dolphins, fans, and welcome into the Thursday, March the 1st edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast. I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, I could not be more excited. We are going to be taking inventory of the Dolphins' current roster with my guest, Simon Clancy, from Ryan Tannehill, Jarvis Landry, and the entire Dolphins roster. We'll get his thoughts on the direction of this football team in 2018. And on tomorrow's podcast, we'll talk about all things 2018 Miami Dolphins draft. But first, I have to remind you guys, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and review. As you guys know by now, that's the best way for the podcast to grow and get out to more Dolphins. Follow me on Twitter, at NFL. Follow the show at LockedOnFins and check out LockedOnDolphins.com. Right now we have Devontae Parker, Kenny Stills, Jakeem Grant, Leontay Carew, all of their entire catch chart up live right now on LockedOnDolphins.com, so don't miss that. And of course, the other Locked On Sports family of podcasts like the Locked On Heat podcast and Locked On NFL Draft for all the local and national coverage of your favorite teams. And I don't want to waste any more time on this podcast without Simon, so let's go ahead and bring him on on first down. That's another Miami Dolphins and joining the podcast now is a guest from across the pond, former BBC journalist. He's written for Sports Illustrated, the New York Times, and is a lead feature for Gridiron Magazine over in the UK. My guest, my guest Simon Clancy. Simon, how are you doing tonight, man? Good, Travis. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for asking. we got a bunch of stuff to get to today. The combine going on, Adam Gay's taking to the podium, but I kind of just wanted to touch base with you and kind of do a Dolphins inventory since you're, uh, you know, you're pretty well plugged into the team and you know, it's I'm I'm always interested by the fact that you are a Dolphins fan, just the NFL in general. I know that the England has a bigger contingency of English fans these days for the NFL, but being from England, how did you get into the NFL and the Dolphins in particular? Um, it was back in the early Marino days. Actually, I came in from a kid's I'd been at a kid's birthday party, and I came in and there was a, a sports TV show on in the afternoon uh, called Wide World of Sports, which is not anymore. Uh, and they just showed this guy, this kind of number thirteen, blonde hair out the back of his helmet. Just throwing laser deep balls to these, these two, these two receivers who the the antler the the TV announcer was calling the Marx Brothers, and I kind of was just absolutely fascinated by this sport I'd never seen before. I was probably about I don't know nine or ten, uh, and it was that was it. It was Marino throwing to Duper and Clayton, and from that point on, I was totally hooked. And that's you know, I think I've just completed thirty four seasons as a fan. Something like that, which ages me dramatically. But yeah, <laughs> so were you that was after the Super Bowl year, then obviously. Yeah, so th- this was the that that was the eighty four eighty five season. So I think it was highlights from the Super Bowl season. It was the opening kind of maybe it was the first week of the following season. So, so yeah, it was way back in the earliest part of Marino's tenure. That's pretty interesting because you know I'm I'm thirty years old, Simon. So I have literally I saw when I became a Dolphins fan. It was when they were you know still at the at the end of that Shula era, the end of that peak era, and then from there it's been all downhill. But you kind of hit a, a big wave, <laughs> a bit of a dip, and then a nice little uh, pop back up again. But man, it's been it's been a long long time as a Dolphins fan. It has been a really long time. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, one AFC Championship in that in that time. Uh, you know, and we've endured as you know. 300 or so different quarterbacks, 200 different <laughs> coaches, and no light at the end of the tunnel. So, you know, fingers crossed it's going to get better. But, uh, yeah, I don't know, you're probably the same. I kind of wonder whether or not we're just doomed for – we talked a bit off-air about the Mariners. I wonder whether or not we're doomed for sort of that kind of 
hanging around between six and ten and ten and six for for infamy. So we shall see. Yeah, well, maybe, I guess it'll make it more sweeter when that moment does happen. But let's uh let's go ahead and fix the Dolphins right now, Simon. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about let's start with Adam Gaze. And you go yeah. back a year ago, and he's considered the pariah of the Miami Dolphins, the savior of a drowning franchise. One year later, a quarterback injury, a crazy set of circumstances, the hurricane, the head, the offensive line coach, all the stuff that went into it. His linebacker goes AWOL. He's a thirty-two and thirty-two coach. 32 and 33 if you count the postseason. What are your general thoughts on Adam Gaze, and how can he and how will he get better? I mean, I'm a huge fan. I wrote a piece for, for the magazine Gridiron a while ago, about six months ago, um, pre this season, and said that I, I believed he was the most important signing the Dolphins had made since they drafted Dan Marino. And I, I truly believe that. And you can take in, you know, people would say, oh, what about Zach Thomas? What about Jason Taylor? And that's fine. But, you know, Taylor and Thomas didn't win anything. They didn't take us anywhere. And ultimately, Marino didn't either. We didn't win anything with Dan Marino. And we've not won anything with Adam Gates. But in terms of what he brings to the table, um, and let's, you know, let's not confuse the fact that he's made mistakes. And certainly last year was a difficult year for him. But, you know, look at the statistics. He's essentially, like you say, 32 and 32. 12 and a half games that he's played, that he's coached in, where he's had his franchise quarterback. I mean, that's it. That's, you know, that's the record for him. That's almost a third of his games as a head coach without Ryan Tannehill. You look at somebody like Mike McCarthy, the, the Packers head coach, over the same period, he's, that Gaze is 16 to 16, McCarthy is 17 and 15. Um, and yet he had Aaron Rodgers for 21 of those 32 games. So you kind of see that Gaze has actually performed, not miracles, because miracles would be, two playoff seasons and would be, you know, winning playoff games and winning uh, AFC East and things like that. But, you know, he has performed at a level outside of the expectation given what's happened with regards to quarterback, you know. And I can't blame him last year for going after Jay Cutler. Why wouldn't you? You know about him. He knows the system. Cutler got us to more wins last season. I'm, sh- I'm certain than Matt Moore would have done. You know, nobody wanted to see Brandon Doughty at quarterback or, <laughs> or you know, anybody like that. Uh, uh, you know, and I've spoken to Gaze and I've interviewed Gaze and I've spoken to the players. I've been in the locker room after wins. I've been in the locker room after defeats. You know, the players believe in him. The players like him. That He has a, there is an air about him that, you know, you meet people in life who walk into a room and they, and they captivate the room. Gaze is like that. He's tall. He's kind of, you know, he, he looks you in the eye when he talks to you and he, and he means every answer. But if he doesn't like what you say, he will cut you down. And, and I think the players like that, you know. And I can remember being in the locker room after the Cleveland game last season. We went to overtime. We beat the Browns when Ajayi went round the left end, and and Gaze was absolutely furious in the locker room afterwards. He was furious at the fact that the game even was close. Cody Parkey, if you remember, missed a, a late field goal that would have won it for the Browns. And whilst a lot of the Dolphins players were celebrating, and I can remember Darren Ritzy grabbing grabbing hold of him and sort of jumping all over him, and Gaze was absolutely furious. And when he came to the podium, he, he could barely kind of look reporters in the eye. Uh, and that sort of told me something about him and about his demeanour. Uh, you know, and like I said, let's not pretend that he didn't make mistakes last year and the, the whole Chris Forster thing was ugly. And, you know, that's not his fault, of course, but he brought the guy in. But uh, what I think is that there is a guy that is a keeper. I don't think the Dolphins can continue to to get rid of coaches every two or three years. Uh, and I know certainly from speaking to, to people around Stephen Ross, Stephen Ross fundamentally believes that he has found his, his modern-day Don Shula. He totally and utterly believes that. He believes in gays about as much as any one man can believe in another man. And, and I think what we saw last season was, was difficult because of the injury to Ryan Tannehill. And you can't, you know, whatever you think of Tannehill, he's probably a top 12 to 14 quarterback in this league. And, and, you know, you take Aaron Rodgers away from the, the Packers last season. We saw what happened. Brett Hundley lost eight of 11 games. You know, you put Brian Hoyer in instead of Tom Brady. New England aren't making the playoffs. You put, you know, whoever in, in, in place of Matt Ryan, those sorts of things. Take Russell Wilson out of the equation and, and see what happens to Pete Carroll and the Seahawks. 
that is that is just a fundamental fact of what happened last season. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you mentioned Ryan Tannehill playing twelve and a half games. Dolphins were eight and five in those games, so he's obviously yeah. has a good record in those those moments. And you talked about kind of the the uh, the perception of Adam Gaze throughout the course of the league in the locker room. And I wrote an article when they first signed. Adam Gazer, or hired Adam Gaze, I should say, just with all these quotes from different coaches and GMs and players and guys that have been around Adam Gaze, John Elway said he's the smartest guy he's ever been around. So it's, I yeah. mean, you just, there's so much admiration from everyone across the league. So I don't, it's, it's hard to see all the criticism about him after one bad season with Matt Moore and Jay Cutler. So I, I'm totally There's definitely, you. there's definitely a smartest guy in the room thing about him, you know, and he walk, like I said, when he walks into the room, he, he is a really, really bright guy. He's a big brain. And, you know, and like you say, you talk about Elway, you talk about the Peyton Manning situation where Manning talked about him and their, and their sort of 4 or 5 a.m. text message sessions and those sorts of things. Peyton Manning doesn't respect a huge amount of people in the NFL. And, you know, he has the ultimate respect for Adam Gates. And like I said, the Dolphin players really respect that. You know, he's loose, but they know where the line is. They know what, you know, what they can and can't do. And they ultimately know what is expected of them. And if they fall below that, then, then changes are going to be made. And I think that, that that's what they find fascinating and enduring and important about what Gaze brings to the table. So taking that into account, how would you respond to someone that gives you just a results-based analysis saying, well, he went 6-10? and 10? I mean, what, what's the response to that? Well, I mean, that, that, that's fact. I mean, you can't argue against the fact that was the record. But the caveat obviously has to be the fact that, like we talked about, you know, that team is not 6-10 and 10 with Ryan Tannehill at quarterback. You know, they beat the Jets in in week three. Yeah. Uh, I have no doubt that they don't that they beat the Raiders uh, on Sunday night. I have no doubt that they beat the Buccaneers at, at home. Those three wins immediately put the Dolphins in the playoffs. Yeah, exactly. You know, nine, seven. Do you know what I mean? I, 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 we wouldn't have laid in... There, there would be no let, there would be no 20 to nothing defeat uh, in London to the Saints. I'm <laughs> not saying we'd have beaten the Saints, but that wouldn't have happened. We certainly wouldn't have lost 40 to nothing against Baltimore on that shambles of a Thursday night. You know, you can essentially take five or six games and turn them potentially into wins. You can certainly turn three or four into wins. And, and immediately that puts Miami back in the playoffs for the second year running under a young head coach, probably, you know, punching above his weight, given the fact that we have deficiencies in certain areas. So uh, I think ultimately it all comes down to the quarterback and, and the fact that you lose your guy in, in the summer and you do what's best. And, and men to make do is what the Dolphins did last season. It's a breath of fresh air to hear you say that. Let's go ahead and get into those two Dolphins, really hot rod topics, and, or lightning rod topics, I should say. And well, the first one's obviously the quarterback. And, you know, yeah. there's been all this talk about Baker Mayfield, Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, whoever it might be, the Dolphins are going to go ahead and target, trade up, whatever the case may be. There's been tons of stuff. So there's two trains of thoughts. Two trains of thought. Are the Dolphins adamant that Ryan Tannehill is the present and potentially the future, as we may have heard today at the scouting combine press conference from Adam Gase? Or are these plethora of reports from the media coming out that the Dolphins cover all these quarterbacks? Is that accurate? Can you sort any of that out for us? I mean, this is the this is what we would call kind of a smoke machine season, as in you know people are blowing a lot of smoke and nobody really knows. But I I would probably say both, if that's you know if I can, as in no franchise goes forward without forward planning and looking at what potentially could happen. I think there's an awful lot of belief in Ryan Tannehill, um, and you know reports like you know. Tannehill had his best year in those, in those however many games it was before he got injured against Arizona. He did. There were reports last summer that he was looking better than ever, and that came from players, that came from coaches, that came from observers who went there every day. And by that, I mean media observers, and not just the, the local reporters, but some of the national reporters that went down and, and saw him play. Um, but he's 30, or he will be 30 at the start of the season. He's coming off two fairly serious knee injuries. He is a mobile quarterback who relies on, you know, movement around the pocket. He's able to manipulate the pocket 
by his footwork. He is a target. We know that he is the toughest guy, you know, one of the toughest guys pound for pound in the league, given the pounding he takes week in, week out, behind some pretty derisory lines at times. So he is vulnerable, and therefore it would be irresponsible of the Dolphins' front office not to think of the future. Now, the other train of thought is that, yes, they really like him, and he's a great guy, and you know the players do rally around him. I, I, I never bought into the Miko Grimes stuff about the players hating him. You only have to look at some of the players' social medias to see him working out or hanging out with Kenny Stills or Carew or Cameron Wake and, and those kind of things. The other side of things is that Adam Gaze and that front office may want their own guy. You, and you can't blame them because Ryan was obviously drafted by, a, by another head coach. There may be a guy that they see, and I would suspect, although I don't know, but I would suspect it's Baker Mayfield that they see and they think this could be somebody that we could get behind, given his attitude, given his just winning mentality. Mayfield is just one of those guys who just has it. You know, he's like a Russell Wilson, he's like an Aaron Rodgers, he's one of those guys that just has it. And it's hard to put your finger on it. So I, I, I think there's probably two sides to it, that they, they are comfortable going forwards with Ryan Tannehill because they know what he is, they know what he could potentially become because they saw it last season, but there is a concern about the knee. The other side of things is, look, there's an opportunity potentially for us to get our hands on a franchise-differing quarterback, somebody that perhaps could take the next step that maybe Ryan can't. Maybe he's had one too many hits. Maybe that knee isn't, you know, is going to lessen what, what he does best. So it, it's interesting. Miami find themselves in a very interesting situation. And I, and I would also say that one thing that, that probably is on the table or should be on the table, is potentially moving Tannehill. Now, they will have talked about it. There's, I, cannot I cannot believe there's not been a scenario where, where the team has sat down and gone through everything as diligently as they do and thought about other teams in the league that need quarterbacks. And I think specifically the Cleveland Browns, although they wouldn't be high on my list, but I would think the Denver Broncos and I think the Arizona Cardinals would be potentially two landing spots for Ryan Tannehill if they decided that they could move on with him. And I would imagine that during the next week or so at the Combine, they will have informal conversations with Steve Kime at Arizona and notably John Elway in Denver. Because that Denver, that Denver team and that Arizona team are teams who do not need a rookie quarterback to come in and paddle around for two years. They are teams who are getting old and need to win now, especially the Broncos. So that is a scenario that I could certainly envisage a conversation happening at the Combine where Denver say, you know... We have the five spot. If we were to take Tannehill off your hands, would you be potentially looking for a Mayfield or a Rosen or a Darnold? And if that was the case, what's it going to take? So I can see all three scenarios, but I, and I can see Miami being happy with all three of them. But I suspect that Ryan Tannehill being the starting quarterback of the Dolphins on a week one next season is, is where we end up. And well, it's nice to know that they have the forethought to at least plan for, you know, backup scenarios because I mean look at what the Seahawks did you mentioned Russell Wilson when they had that offseason with Matt Flynn and Russell Wilson look what the Eagles did yeah. with Sam Bradford and Carson Wentz you just Absolutely. protect yourself against the fact that this is the most important position in sports and if you don't get it right you're not going to have a good season so I totally understand that it makes total sense but let's move on to the go ahead Simon no, no, I was, I was 100% agreeing with you. Okay, cool. Let's move on to the next uh, topic here, the, the, the another hot topic for the Dolphins, and of course it's Jarvis Landry. I know you're a big fan, as most Dolphins fans are. I don't see why they wouldn't be. A guy that just shows up on the film and just he produces, he's durable. He's on, he's on the field every single Sunday. He brings that lightning rod, that juice. So I have several questions for you. Is, is this thing yeah. salvageable? In your estimation, what is Jarvis Landry's true, true worth, and should they pay that, whatever he thinks he's worth? 
is it salvageable? I, I, absolutely, 100%, I'm sure it's salvageable. Nothing is is unsalvageable when we're talking money and we're talking about the amounts of money that, that Jarvis potentially is going to earn. So I don't think anything is unsalvageable. I, I also believe, I don't know, but I've, I've led to believe that they are not that far away on a contract. Um, I'm not sure how much further both sides will, will give in, but obviously certain things will come to bear, I think, over the next week, as they tend to do at, at the Combine. How much is he worth? How much is how much? I mean, it, he's worth how however much a team is willing to pay for him. People will argue that he's a slot receiver who runs a four seven and averaged less than ten yards per catch last season, and that's very fair. It, it doesn't take into consideration what we've already talked about in terms of the fact that he, you know, for most of that, certainly most of the last two years, he's played with backup quarterbacks. You look at somebody like Devonte Adams, you know, who's a receiver. Green Bay's receiver, four-year, $58 million contract, $30 million guaranteed. That's the kind of ballpark area that Jarvis and his agent are looking at. Why are they looking at that? Well, they both came out together. Same same year. Last four years they played. Devontae has played 59 of 64 games. Jarvis has played 64 of 64. So, so Jarvis is durable. He also works in an area, i.e. closer to the line of scrimmage, where he is more susceptible to bigger hits. So nickel, line, nickel safeties, nickel linebackers. And linebackers, that's where he does most of his dirty work. Devontae works more to the outside. Um, Jarvis obviously works inside in the slot. Jarvis has 163 more catches for 1,227 more yards. Career average, 10.1 to 11.9. But obviously, as I said, Devontae has had Aaron Rodgers for three and a half seasons. Last two seasons, we've had Matt, um, Matt Moore and Jay Cutler. Uh, and then Adams has 26 touchdowns to, to Jarvis' 22 receiving, plus one rushing, so 23. You can understand why Jarvis feels like he should be paid more than Devontae Adams. So four years, 65 million, 35 guarantee, whatever. Those are the sorts of things that he and his agent um, will be looking at. And you can understand why. No receiver in history, in history, has caught more, more catches in the first four seasons than Jarvis Landry. Now you can say again, people will argue, oh, he's a slot receiver and he, you know, he catches against the Nick. And that's, that's all fine. That's what he does. But his career average is 10.1 yards per catch. Now, last time I checked, to get a first down, you're looking at 10 yards. So his average is more than a first down per catch. So every time you throw to him, you're picking up a first down. This is a game where we move the ball up and down the field more than 10 yards to continue to move the ball up and down the field more than 10 yards. And he does that. He is tough. He is durable. He works hard. Yeah, there was an issue earlier on in the season that, uh, you know, and I think he's paid heed to that. Um he takes a lot of big hits, but he moves the chains. He scores touchdowns. He arrives in big moments. He converts fourth downs in big moments. You know, when the lights are shining brightest, Jarvis is there. He does not hide. He is a spark plug for the team and also for the fan base. It is hard to say that you will pay him $16 million a year. That is a very tough decision. It's made more difficult by the fact that the Dolphins made irrational decisions around players who are less worth what they are being paid. So put Ndamukong Suh to one side because he was never going to fulfil his contract despite the fact that he's played at an all-pro level ever since he arrived. It was an unfulfillable contract in terms of value to value for money. But one good season from Kiko Alonso, one good season from Andre Branch, the Lawrence Timmons contract, the Jay Cutler contract. Now, I, I you know I don't blame Gaze for the Jay Cutler contract or for going out and getting but but there is a history of bad contracts. TJ McDonald, a player I like very much, but... He was essentially given a, a big contract based on what he did in the preseason, in the preseason alone. So there are contracts that you can understand why Jarvis will be sitting there and thinking, Rashad got a big deal, Cameron got a big deal, 
Kenny got a big deal. Here I am, the Spark program. You know, I'm the face of the franchise. You know, when it when Monday Night Football redid their redid their um their credits at the start of this season, Jarvis was one of the players, one of the twenty players that was on the you know on the red carpet. So you can understand why he feels that way. Is sixteen million too much? It probably is, but I think there is an area between the sort of thirteen and the sixteen million that a deal can be reached. I, I just don't think Miami can continue to give away good players. We're not good enough to do that. And you look at the Lamar Millers, the Olivier Vernons, the Derek Shelbys, the Rashard Matthews, the Charles Clays. These guys over and over and over again are going away and becoming better players. You look back at, you know, Evan Mathis, all those kind of there is a history of of the Dolphins not being able to develop players or developing them to a point and not investing them and deciding to invest in other players, in other teams' players, which hasn't worked for essentially time immemorial because it happens year after year after year. So I would be disappointed as a fan if he left. I would understand it as somebody who sees how the business of the NFL works, but I would like to think that the, the two sides can come to a an agreement because it would be disappointing to see him doing what he's doing elsewhere. And I've kind of resigned because to the f- ultimately he's the best in the league at doing it. He really is, and I've I've kind of resigned to the fact that I feel like we're going to lose him at this point. So I've kind of been talking myself into that. But then I go back and watch the tape, Simon, and I've been charting all of his catches and every Dolphins receiver's catches the last couple of weeks here, and mm-hmm. everything he catches is within three yards of the line of scrimmage. So yeah. what is he? I mean, he has to break tackles and and run for ten yeah. yards after the catch just to get to that average you want to talk about. And you go back to 2016 with Ryan Tannehill, he was at 12.1 yards per catch, and every receiver's exactly. yards and average and stats went down this year with Jay Cutler. So it, it's a like you said, it's so tricky. I don't know how to where we're going to put it, but uh, let's go ahead and move on to the rest of the, the, the roster here and get off these two hot yeah. topics here. And and before we do that, we have to go take a little quick break. Locked on Dolphins podcast at Winfield NFL at Locked on Fins. I'm joined by Simon Clancy. He is at Cy Clancy on Twitter. We're going to talk about the rest of the Dolphins roster after this. Joined back here again by Simon Clancy talking about the Miami Dolphins 2018 season as well as the 2017 season. And I kind of want to round out this part of the podcast, Simon, and ask you about the inventory of the entire roster. And let's go ahead and start with the last part we talked about with the wide receivers outside of Jarvis Landry. Now let's talk about the future of the room with or without Jarvis Landry. What's it going to look like if they lose Landry and what's it going to look like if they retain Landry? I think it's a strength with Landry and I think it's a weakness without him because, you know, you're essentially relying on Kenny Stills, who's a good player and who's, you know, played well in the season up to his contract and played well after getting the big contract. Devontae Parker is a massive question mark, a massive question mark. And, I, you know, I am somebody who has questioned his mentality and his mindset and his football intelligence. Can he stay healthy? And I, and I don't see that he has. And every year people say he's going to have a monster year. He's going to, and then he doesn't. He gets injured and something happens and he can't play through the pain. He struggles mentally and then he makes a, you know, a couple of amazing catches. And you're like, yeah, this is now he's going to break out. And then all of a sudden he disappears and... You know, I just, I think it's a, like I said, it's a strength with Jarvis. I think it becomes a big question mark without him. And if Jarvis does leave, does that mean that you put Kenny Stills in the slot and Jakeem becomes Kenny Stills? Uh, what does that mean for Parker? Where does Leonte Carew fit in? You know, a guy that they paid a lot a lot for in terms of draft picks, who's been slow to develop, but has all the credentials that you would look for as a, a, a receiver who can make those intermediate catches. He always got open. He got open deep, had a, you know, a big... Um, you know, yards per catch average uh, at Rutgers um, and he's a guy that I see and saw at Rutgers and seen with Miami when he's thrown to consistently, he gets better and better and better and he gets stronger through the game. 
but that would be an area of real concern if you lost Landry. And I think you'd have to invest in a relatively high draft pick. And if you were going to replace like for like and keep the the, the, the team as it were, you'd be looking at a, a Christian Kirk or a DJ Moore or an Anthony Miller who would come in and play that particular role. But heaven forbid they would, you know, the, are they ever going to get up to that level that, that, that Jarvis provides? I think it's very difficult. And I think, yeah, a, a, weak, a strength would become a weakness. And, you know, Lest we not forget, and I, I think we're probably going to move on to tight ends and how they fit so well with what Ryan likes to do. Ryan is uh, Jarvis is Ryan's security blanket, and you know he is open often. He is there as a as a check down option when the guys don't get open deeper. Um, so you would be taking that away from a quarterback who's going to have some confidence issues when he comes back. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, it's inter- interesting you mentioned that. I'm kind of thinking about this t- this whole team shift because it just seems strange to me that you let Landry walk and then just basically use the draft pick you get for him to replace him with another rookie because, yeah. you know, y- like you said, there's not a good chance you're going to replace that production right away or, or if at all ever. So my idea, Simon, is that, you know, watching Ryan Tannehill and the things that he does best, and you mentioned that Landry's a security blanket, but he is so good on play action. He is so good on yeah. the naked boots, on getting outside of the pocket and kind of playing from a, a position where he can kind of move around a little bit. And so... And working that type of those different multi-layer reads in terms of like the the bootlegs and stuff with the tight ends coming across the formation, I see that the Dolphins could would behoove themselves to go get a, a top level tight end, and they haven't had that since Charles Clay left, or at least even a good tight end. So, what is your sense as far as the Dolphins want to do at tight end? Is it going to be a draft, a free agent pickup? Are they going to just stick stand pat with Marquise Gray and AJ Derby? I, I mean, uh, Gaze was talking about AJ Derby here at the at the combine, and, uh, and obviously Marquise Gray is a a player I thought was underutilized last season, given what he brings both as a run blocker and uh, and as a receiver. But clearly, they need a number one guy. Clearly, they haven't had it, and they've been trying to go to the well with Jordan Cameron and with um with uh, Julius Thomas, and it hasn't worked out. And and again, I, you can't blame them for thinking that that you know that might work, but. You know, they really do need a guy. Free agency is kind of bereft of, you know, you've got a Jimmy Graham, but can they afford to bring in a Jimmy Graham? Can you afford to keep Jarvis Landry and bring in Jimmy Graham? Tyler Eifert is a guy who, you know, high talented, high level guy, but, you know, cannot stay healthy. And are you essentially going to be spending money for a guy who's going to spend eight, 10, 12 weeks injured potentially? Um, Trey Burton, you know, he became uh, something during the Eagles playoff run but essentially what is he he's a you know he's a guy who can work within the painted numbers but are you going to stretch the field with the Trey Burton is he going to frighten you know a Dante Hightower is he going to frighten those sorts of players down the field I, I don't think so so ultimately I think you're looking at the draft and I think you're looking at you know somebody in those first three rounds be it a Mark Andrews be it a, be it a Jasicki be it a Hayden Hurst be it an Ian Thomas be it a Dallas Godot who who is going to come in and be that sort of flexible move tight end? Because obviously, Gaze runs that wide ISO formation more than any head coach in the league. And what I mean by that is that's that's three receivers to one side, and the tight end lined up as the Y isolated to the other side. And what that does is that it essentially it creates mismatches in coverage. It means that your tight end gets lined up on uh, on somebody that he should be able to beat, uh, and it ultimately it helps the quarterback identify pre-snap coverages. So I think. They will look at a draft pick, and I would suspect that you know it will be somebody in those first three rounds. And you know, if you're looking for a a guy who's going to block and catch, then Hayden Hurst of South Carolina certainly sticks out. Jasicki is a, a, a horrific blocker, but great receiver down the field. Andrews is a, a little bit of both. Godet you worry about because he's come from a lower level, is a little bit sticky in his route running. Doesn't I wonder whether he's going to create separation? But so it's it's those kind of things. It's you know you're trying to find. 
you know, you're trying to find that, that ace in the pack. Troy Fumagalli, again, somebody who blocks really well, but I worry about whether or not he can get open a little bit high cut. So, yeah, I mean, there are question marks in that position, but, you know, I, I think they have interesting answers on the roster because I think, like I said, Gray is underutilised. They really like AJ Derby. You know, Gase is at the combine talking about a guy they picked up with three weeks to go to the back end of the season. They clearly do like him, but I, they do need that number one guy. And like you say, you know, Ryan does so well on those bootlegs and, and getting outside the pocket and utilising that tight end, especially out of that wire sort of formation. I think that's a, that's a critical area for the Dolphins. And you mentioned that three-by-ones that they run so often. They do it in a lot of different ways, too, based on what I've been seeing mm. through 2017 film study is they, they'll do it with bunch, they'll stack guys, they'll do a tight yeah. slot, you know, plus split uh, traditional formation. Yeah. So having a guy that can kind of do everything seems like the best bet to me. Obviously, that's what you want at every position, but it just yeah. seems like that would be like one of the best moves the Dolphins could make this offseason. But let's go Absolutely. back to the let's go back to the backfield side and talk about Kenyon Drake yeah. he kind of exploded onto the scene and and you know I was a fan of his his at Alabama I thought that when yeah, the too. Dolphins kind of had that like the a little bit of a ambivalent situation in terms of who was going to be the guy that stepped forward after Arian Foster went down I thought it was going to be Kenyon Drake and then Jay Ajayi happened but now here we are and he's got Kenyon Drake is obviously the starting running back you've got Damian Williams as a unrestricted free agent and then you've got a guy like CJ Anderson floating out there who could potentially be cut from the Denver Broncos with his familiarity with both Adam Gaze and Eric Settisville so what does the running back position look like going into next season for you if you're in charge? Uh, I, I think uh, Kenyon Drake, the obvious starter, and I think they were concerned about Drake when um, you know when Foster moved on because they were concerned about slightly slow to process things, worried about his pass protection, and actually what happened was once they trusted him enough and they put him in the game, they you know we all saw what happened not only as a runner but also as a receiver, but also mainly as a pass protector. And there were a number of games where he you know knew exactly where to be. That had been a huge problem for Jay Ajayi, not identifying the right person to block. And in fact, it had been an issue for Damian Williams as well, who's one of Gaze's very, very favourite lieutenants in that locker room. Um, and Drake was able to, to step up. He knew exactly where to be. He knew exactly who to block. And uh, and he did a terrific job of, of protecting whoever he was, uh, whoever was a quarterback. Um, I, I certainly think CJ Anderson is definitely an option. You know, Anderson has talked fairly vocally, certainly on social media, about his wanting to, to rejoin up with, with Damian Williams. What I think you're going to see is a, a number of veterans getting, you know, I think Jonathan Stewart was cut by the Panthers today. Uh, Doug Martin is another one who, who, you know, in Tampa, who the Dolphins have dabbled around a bit in, in the past in terms of potential sort of low-risk trades. Uh, and then obviously the draft, you know, whether or not they just try and mix and match with a bigger guy like a Bo Scarborough or somebody like that who's, you know, who can be quicker than he looks, uh, and is big and is physical, and you know, and, and can suddenly sort of be that lightning and thunder with, with Kenyon, who is a big human being. I mean, I stood on the sideline during warm-ups of the Cleveland game, uh, home two seasons ago now, and there was a wow factor when when Drake is standing there. He is a big human. He doesn't look it. Uh, he doesn't you know when you look at the size and the on on paper, but actually. There in the pads, he's a big human being, and he, you know he takes a lot to to, to bring him down. Uh, and he's the kind of guy that Gase likes because if he can plug him in, and he knows that he can rely on him as a runner, as a receiver, and as a pass protector, that's really important. But I I, I would absolutely expect them to look at ACJ Anderson if he if he shakes free because Gase, you know, we saw what he tried to do when they tried to bring him across two seasons ago, and you know if he does end up leaving Denver, then I, I kind of feels like a no brainer really. I love that that possible pairing. And just talking about Kenyon Drake and kind of his emergence, his emergence late in the year, uh, you know, that touchdown run that he had against Denver, that long run he had against New England, mm. obviously the play where he splits out in the slot and catches a, a deep go route yeah. against the linebacker. It's just there's so much there with him, and I'm, I'm so excited to see what he can become. But 
he's only going to be as good as his offensive line can be. And that's kind of the case yeah. with running backs. And we've had this issue for, you know, as long as I can remember, Simon, this offensive line has been a mess, an un- unmitigated disaster for the most part. And we have, in my opinion right now, we have three guys that I think you can consider viable quality starters. And to me, they're Laramie Tunzel, Jesse Davis, and Jawan James. Now, Mike Pouncey is yeah. a guy that he hasn't played 16 games. This is the first time he played 16 games in a half decade. What's going to happen with this offensive line? This they have some big decisions to make. What's, what do you think is going to happen on the O line? I mean, we could be, we, this could be nineteen ninety seven, and we could be having this exact same conversation. It could be two thousand seven. <laughs> we could be doing the same. So, I mean, how much more fixing can you do? Uh, I mean, truly, th- this is a line with three first round picks. This is a line that's you know, Jawan James is essentially the best player on that line. I, I, I think in terms of the, in terms of performance, Jesse Davis, free agent, picked up from the Jets, plugged in. Really well, did a really decent job uh, at right guard. He, like you say, he's a keeper. I, I think they pay James. I'm not sure whether or not they're going to pay him the 9.8 million, but I, I wonder whether or not they redo a contract and, and get him in at slightly cheaper. But I think he's one of the upper echelon right tackles in, in in the league, and you know he's certainly in pass protection. He's one of the. Uh, I think he graded out as one of the top four or five guys, uh, and that's what you need, especially with a with a Ryan Tannehill coming back off the knee injury. The biggest concern for me actually is not Mike Pounce. The biggest concern for me is Laramie Tunsil. Somebody needs to light a fire under Laramie Tunsil because he has played down to a level that you would not expect him to play in the probably year and a half. I think he started really well that first half of the first half of his first season. In at left guard, and I think actually I saw a number of people, Andy Benoit at the MMQB, a couple of other people put him in their sort of half-season all-pro team as a, as a left guard. I think he's fallen away. I think mentally he struggles. His concentration levels are an issue, and sometimes he just does not play up to his athletic ability, which is being incredibly light on his feet. Um, and that would concern me a little bit. I, I think left guard, you know, I've talked, we've talked about this before, and Adam Gase doesn't really value the guard position the way that other teams do in that I think if Adam Gaze coached in a league where passing was the only thing that you can do he would be thrilled because ultimately I don't think he wants to run the ball and that goes a little bit back to Jarvis because Jarvis is essentially an extension of that run game but I think they need to find a viable starter at the centre and at the left guard position now whether or not one of those is Ted Larson who was okay last season he was okay you know he's fine you know look around the NFL though lots of teams get away with okay offensive lineman and, and, and that's obviously a knock-on effect of, of spread offenses in college um, and you look at the kind of the handful of, of players coming out now who actually play NFL offensive like hand in the dirt the Mike McGlinchey's the Quentin Nelson's the James Daniels at Iowa those kind of guys who you know who are reliable NFL you know you can see those traits Will Hernandez less so but in terms of what he brings to the table Isaiah Wynn at Georgia similarly it, you know there is a we are bereft of those sorts of players. Are you going to keep Mike Pouncey at nine million next season? I would be astonished if they do. But obviously, you're going to need a centre. That could be Ted Larson. Is it somebody? Is it Mason Cole? Is it James Daniels? Is it you know? Is it Billy Price? Is it one of those guys? Is it Frank Ragnar of Arkansas that they draft? Do they look? Do they look into free agency? You know, there's a couple of players in free agency that you could look at. John Sullivan is a free agent at the Rams. He's 32, high IQ guy. You know, top 15 starter was very helpful to Jared Goff this season. You look at someone like Travis Swanson at Detroit. You know, can he stay healthy? He's a legitimate starter at centre in the NFL, but he's missed three, five, and four games, something like that, I think, over the last three seasons. It's one of those types of people that you're going to need to bring in because I just don't see... You know, Pouncey played pretty well in pass protection. He was abominable at, you know, 
as a run as a run blocker, and, and that is a massive issue. I don't think you can move him to guard anymore because I just don't. He's just not that guy. They need to find, you know, those two positions, and they they just need to do a better job of drafting because they have done a really really bad job of drafting linemen and then coaching them. You look at Isaac, Isaac Asiata from last year. I wasn't a fan anyway. I wonder whether a year in an NFL strength room will help him and come in at left guard. But the fact that when the season was lost last year and he still didn't get snaps pretty much told me the story of what Asiata's future was going to be. And I don't think it's as an NFL player, certainly not with the Miami Dolphins. So it's a concern, but how much more fixing can you try and do? As I said at the top, I, I just don't know where you go with this. You know, Adam wants to get the ball out quickly. He wants So his guards essentially are guys that can hold people up in pass protection for one or two seconds so that Ryan can get the ball out of his hands quickly, and that's fine. But you need a viable running game to keep defences honest. And Jesse Davis, like we've talked about, has played pretty well, especially given where he's come from. But uh, I don't have any, you know, I don't, I don't have any answers. <laughs> I really don't. I'm lost as to how you make the unit better. <laughs> that's totally fair. And I, I think you're, you run the risk of just, I mean, not that it matters, but you run the risk of really losing the fan base if you go into the season once again with Ted Larson and Mike Pouncey because yeah. it's just the, the same thing over and over again, like you mentioned. But how many resources can you put in? Because it does seem to me like this is a good spot in the draft for the Dolphins standpoint from free agency and the draft in that that second day, you know, second and third round or yeah. the, the mid-level free agents like you mentioned, you know, John Sullivan, some of those guys. It seems like those are the kind of guys that would be a good fit for the Dolphins to go ahead and get those issues plugged up. But like you said, you know, it's anyone's best guess at this point. There's a lot, you know, looking in free agency, there's a couple of guys, you know, Zach Fulton, Senio Calamete are all decent guard options. And then in the draft... Like I talked about, Isaiah Wynn, Braden Smith. There's a kid at Nevada, Austin Corbett, who I really like. There's David Bright at Stanford, who's left tackle or kick inside to left guard. Will Hernandez. The players are out there. It's just whether or not they value them enough to take them as high as they will go, if you see what I mean. It's you know, it's a kind of quid pro quo, and I'm not sure whether or not they will jump in and take a guard and just say, look, to hell with it, and let's let's take Isaiah Wynn in, in the second round and plug him in at left guard from day one, and we'll probably have a 10-year starter, but really, do we want to spend a second round pick on a guard because our mentality is not, that's not what we do. It's a difficult one. It is, and we'll find out more as free agency kind of plays along here and the, the Dolphins roster gets sorted out, but uh, we'll have definitely have our opportunities there. Let's talk about the defense on the other side here, Simon, at Wingfield NFL, at Locked On Fins, the Locked On Dolphins podcast. My guest, Simon Clancy, at Cy Clancy on Twitter. We're going to talk about fixing the Dolphins' defense on the other side. And back on the Locked On Dolphins podcast, I am joined by Simon Clancy. We're talking about the Dolphins' 2018 roster and how to get it fixed. And Simon, let's go on to the defensive side of the football here. And there is a ton of money tied up on the defensive line and some rumors about the team moving on from Indomitian Sioux. Is there any truth to that? And if there is or is not, how does the team get better with the guys already on the roster? Because it seems like they're kind of stuck in a spot where, like you mentioned earlier, having to pay Andre Branch. We have Cam Wake, who's obviously been one of the best producers in this team's history. But what kind of what does the defensive line look like going into 2018? I think it's in good shape, and I think it's probably the best unit on the team. I think we need to get better as uh, as edge rushers, and I think you know that was certainly an issue late in games where we just couldn't get to the passer, um, you know, and that that that's an issue, and especially when you know most of that pass rush effort is coming from from Cameron Wake. I was impressed to a degree by Charles Harris; he had a, a number of almost sacks last season, but I thought he played pretty well generally, and if he can just translate some of those almost sacks where he's half a step away into sacks and he can move into that seven to 10 kind of sack area. And, and Gaze was talking at the combine today about he's going to obviously be given every chance to win that starters job over an Andre branch or, a, you know, or, or cam who, who I suspect will just rotate in more and more and more in obvious passing situations. Um, 
but also doesn't look like he's falling away, which is a great thing. I don't think they'll move on from Sue. I really don't. I just see that there's too much money tied into it. And also, why would you give away such a useful player? And he really is that. You know, and again, much like Jarvis Landry, incredibly durable, doesn't miss snaps, plays at an incredibly high level. In behind him, Jordan Phillips is developing slowly and slowly and slowly. And each year we say he's getting better. And he is. He is. I don't think he's ever going to be the sort of the, the run-stuffing defensive tackle that somebody of his... Uh, body type would make you out to believe he should be, but actually what he does is create a number of huge pressure plays. You know, he can be a a hugely disruptive pocket collapser, um, and you see that more and more and more. He just needs to be more consistent. And I wonder in time whether or not without Sue, whether he takes on that mantle as that kind of leader and takes it on more on his shoulders. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see probably this time next year, maybe, when they do move on from Sue. They did brilliantly in the draft with Davin Godshow and uh, and, uh, and Vincent Taylor, both who played really well. But I think that's a real strength uh, of area. And you look even, you know, Terence Faday, good special teamer, decent sort of rotational backup. And even Cameron Malveaux, who came in and, you know, seemed to play pretty well down the stretch when he got snaps. Um, Andre Branch is the question for me. You know, disappointing, kind of highly rated out Clemson, disappointing at Jacksonville, had a pretty decent season with the Dolphins uh, got the big contract which was you know seemed a little bit out of proportion to his to his play three years 27 million I think it was um, and then struggled last year but obviously was injured had the knee operation as soon as he finished the season how does he bounce back you know what sort of Andre Branch we're going to get this year because that will be very key to see how we move forwards but I, I think unit wise I think it's probably the the best unit on the team yeah, and I feel like it is too, but the, the, just the sack production last year was so hard to see. And yeah. you mentioned some of the guys that got drafted in the defensive interior. And talking about Vincent Taylor, he graded out very well in PFF. He had a bunch of run stuffs, according to their within two yards of the line of scrimmage stat. But he got injured in that Week 16 game. Do you know much about what's going on with his knee? I don't at all, actually. I, 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 I saw him on social media talking about him rehabbing it, but I have no idea how that rehab is actually going. I have not heard anything from... You know, there's not been any statements from the Dolphins. There's not been any comments. So I would assume, all things being equal, that he's okay. But we'll have to wait and see. I did. I, I mean, I didn't see any particular diagnosis. I don't know if you saw anything, but um, I would be surprised if it was anything majorly serious because I think I suspect we'd have heard about it by now. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's hope so because I think that he could play a big role in 2018 and kind of doing what Indomitian Sue does and Jordan Phillips does so well and eating up those blockers and freeing up the linebackers because, yeah. as you well know, Simon, in this defense, linebackers have to kind of operate in some space in that wide nine. So, you know, let's talk about the linebackers now. Like the offensive line we talked about earlier, it's been an issue since I can remember. Since Zach Thomas left, <laughs> there has been, I mean, Donnell LRB, Philip Wheeler, pick your poison. It's just been a, a, yeah. a, a disaster. Go back to Aubrey Beavers and, you know, all the way back 20 years ago and it's just been a minefield of, you know, the occasional bright spot, but generally, yeah. God, disaster zone. That's one hell of a name, Aubrey Beavers. <laughs> That's pretty good. So in your estimation, what is the plan for, for Raekwon McMillan and kind of going forward with that position? Are they going to cut Kiko Alonso's reps, and do they have a plan for Stefan Anthony? Because that's a guy that you trade a fifth-round draft pick midseason. You'd think mm. that that's kind of a guy that you have some faith in. So what does the position look like going forward this year? I, I think it's built around McMillan, uh, and that's a strange thing to say for a guy coming off an ACL, but they loved him last season they loved everything that he did they loved everything that he brought to the table in terms of his leadership in terms of his mentality in terms of his play in preseason. 
uh, in terms of sorry in preseason in, in terms of playing training camp, um, and they were pretty fairly devastated when he injured his knee on that uh, on that kickoff coverage against the Falcons. That that was a that was a real kick in the stomach for for them because I think that they thought they really really found somebody special there. Um, now whether or not he bounces back, you know, you look at someone like Reggie Ragland and he struggled to come up back off the knee injury. Um, uh, with the Bills second round pick out of Alabama and eventually was cut wound up at Kansas City but I think that they build around him now whether or not he's uh, they, they play him at middle linebacker or whether or not they see him uh, on the strong side depends will they cut Kiko's will they cut Kiko's snaps you'd like to think so I mean you'd like to think that they'll you know he the Dolphins are slow defensively I mean generally look around that unit they are slow Kiko's one of the faster players on that unit you would like to think that he will be moved into a position where a he's not susceptible to being passed on the entire time, which is such a you know such an issue. Turn and run for Kiko is like watching a you know a Mississippi paddle steamer turn around on a on a very small river. It, it just doesn't happen. Um, you you need to put him in situations where he's moving forwards downhill towards the ball carrier. He cannot be turning and running or turning and chasing. That is just not what you do. And when you see him matched up on a you know on a tight end or a big, you know, look what the Raiders did with um with uh, Jared Cook. In, in that Sunday night game. I mean, Alonso was abused in that game. Um, and then obviously, but but unfortunately, his contract essentially makes him untouchable. You can't cut him because of all the guaranteed money that are there. As for Stefan Anthony, I mean, they must have seen something that they liked. And, you know, Anthony was a, a good downhill player at Clemson. He was put into, defensively, he was put into a scenario where he was able to make plays. He was funneled to the ball. We had a we had a linebacker at the Dolphins who played weak side linebacker, Mullen Greenwood, a few years ago. Who was very good at setting the edge, and then the plays were essentially funneled to him because he made a lot of. He was a good tackler, and that's what happened very similarly at Clemson with Stefan Anthony. He made a lot of tackles going downhill. Instinctively, he wasn't particularly good. He was slow to process information, and you see that a little bit with the Dolphins. But they seemed to like him on passing downs. He came in when he was healthy and played a number of passing downs, and that was a strength in college. He played. He matched up pretty well against tight ends. You, you wouldn't necessarily want to see him on wheel routes against running backs, but. He did a pretty decent job in coverage, but that unit for me is a, you know, is a car crash. And everything that happened there, the Alonso situation in terms of just overpaying him, Timmons again overpaid and overrated, and and kind of at the back end of his career, you're relying on Mike Hull who played okay, but you know you only really want to see him on a couple of downs, and really he's probably a backup. Raquan McMillan is, is is certainly what they see as their future. And I I suspect, and you know we'll go on to talk about it. I'm sure. When it comes to the draft, there will be a player that comes in there, and, and you know, and they plug him in. The other, the other situation, obviously, again that we'll talk about as, as we move forwards, is whether or not that area is supplanted by a by a defensive back, and you stick in a big nickel safety, and you play a little bit like um, a little bit like the Cardinals do when they either when they bring Tyron Matthew into the box, or the way they played Dion Buchanan. Whether or not Miami look to do that, and we'll talk about a Minka Fitzpatrick or a Derwin James and that kind of thing as we move forwards. It will be interesting to see, but you absolutely will want to limit Kiko snaps, and you will want to build around uh, around McMillan and uh, uh, red zone defense as well. is such a critical issue. We were so bad at it last year, so bad, uh, and it, Kiko was on the field so much for those periods, and you just wonder why and and the effect that that had. So, yeah, I mean, his snaps need to be limited moving forwards, and you would hope that Raycon will come back from that ACL and be the sort of player that the Dolphins thought they had twelve months ago. 
you talked about Kiko's inability to change directions, and it, it brings up two plays in my mind that I can recall from this past season. One was the Monday night game against the Carolina Panthers. They throw a little flat route to Christian McCaffrey, and Kiko looked like an AARP member trying to cover on the edge out there. It was real bad. And then they throw, I think it was, I want to say DeAnthony Thomas on the Kansas City Chiefs on a crossing route, and he just got completely juked out of his mind where he couldn't even, it just, it looked so bad. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind seeing I, him limit his reps. I was in the press box. I was in the press box in Carolina for that game, and, uh, sitting above me to the slightly back to the right hand side were the were the Dolphins um, were the Dolphins press officers who were all really good, good guys Jason Jenkins and uh, and Brett and uh, and those guys and and there was a collective sort of <sighs> when that play <laughs> happened with McCaffrey and you could hear the murmurings of the the, the Carolina journos and then the Dolph the, the Dolphins kind of beat journos bees and uh, Omar Kelly and Dave Hyde and. Uh, and those guys were sat sort of uh, across the aisle, and we just all looked at each other. And, and I could just remember Dave looking at me, and Dave and I had known each other for for fifteen years or so. And we just sort of there was just a look, you know, when you just look at each other, catch each other's <laughs> eyes, and just shake hands, and just yeah, it was kind of so so expected, but yet just tragedy. That, that's really the was. that's the beauty of sport, isn't it? The fact that you have one fan base saying, "Oh my god," and then the other fan base saying, "Wow, that McCaffrey, that rookie looks pretty impressive yeah. out there." Well, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. No wonder he looks impressive. Yeah, yeah. You're going because Kiko Alonso is going to happen. So, but you talked about third down defense, Simon, or not third down defense, mm. red zone defense, and the third down and long defense kind of p- plays into that as well. Talking about the Dolphins' inability to kind of take guys off the field and get more defensive backs onto the field. I want to talk about that more yeah. with you talking about Derwin James and Mika Fitzpatrick on the next episode we're going to do here. Yeah. But just talking about the defensive backs now. This position seems to have a lot of upside, but the cornerback position kind of lacks that true game changer, that true, you know, Marcus Peters, Richard Sherman, whatever it is. But I'm of the belief that Bobby McCain is close to being a full-blown star in the slot. Do you see it the same way with Bobby McCain? And is the secondary going to be better this year? I like the secondary, actually. I think it's it's good. Um, I think it has a potential superstar, Xavier Howard, um, who I think played pretty well. during the season, and then played exceptionally well in the back end of the season. Um, I like Bobby McCain an awful lot. I think he's probably one of the best three or four slot corners in the NFL. And I think what you need to remember about slot corner is that essentially every team is looking for a really good slot corner, and most teams don't have it. So most teams are getting by with an average guy there in the slot. And anything other than average or above average is actually kind of smiled at, you know, is kind of applauded because that's what. You know, that's above the norm that you see around the league because slot play is really, really bad. Bobby is a very instinctive, he moves really well, he changes direction very quickly, he's tough, he's a good tackler, he's very vocal, you know, you hear him in the locker room, you know, he's a he's a focal point in the locker room, he's a guy that the other players gravitate to, him and Tony Lippett are very, very close, uh, and I think he's a very tight group generally. I, I, I'm a big fan, he's a free agent next year, which will, will become a very interesting issue and I think in the next issue that you and I in the next podcast that you and I talk about we will look at the slot you know in terms of how it plays out with the draft um I'm a big fan of his I I I like Cordray Tankersley I thought he played pretty well um as a rookie I think he played better than I thought he would play I suppose I'm hoping that X will will take that next step to move into that sort of upper echelon of of corners because he certainly showed that he can do it he's a great you know he's quick he's a great mover he's long He's lean. He's got good hips. He can be a bit grabby at times, but I like that secondary. I think there is, uh, you know, especially with Lippitt coming back. You know, again, it, 
obviously you're expecting him to come back off the Achilles, but you know, I'm a, uh, I'm an Instagram user and I see him on Instagram every day and every day he's working really hard, whether it's, you know, it's in water and getting strengthening that foot. He's now back running. He's, you know, but you can go back six months and he's been doing those exercises over and over and over again to, to, to come back. Um, so I think we're in decent shape there. The secondary, the, the safeties, you know, again, we'll talk about that with the draft and, and how that plays out. I like TJ, I like Rashad, but uh, you know, Rashad's now 30, um, and I wonder sometimes about coverages, especially if we go to a single high. Um, that concerns me a little bit, especially given how good these two guys are coming forwards. Um, but yeah, I, I like the secondary, and I, you know, I'm a big fan of Bobby McCain, but I, I wonder whether or not they will end up bringing in somebody like a Minka Fitzpatrick or a Derwin James who perhaps moves Bobby into a dime situation rather, because we don't play dime either. I mean, you know, we don't play nickel very well and we don't play dime at all, really. And certainly not when you take into consideration the, the teams that, that go into a dime. We keep linebackers on the field when we should have extra defensive backs and that for me is a big issue. Yeah. Um, you know, we are uh, we are not a great dime team and we need to get better in those situations down and distance. Um, and when teams are looking to throw... I mean, how many times... Uh, we've talked about it and, you know... I've talked about it with friends. How many times when other teams have a third and eleven or a third and fifteen, you just think they'll, they'll convert here, they will. <laughs> and historically, you just you just know it's going to happen, and they do. And you just think eh, we do not do a good job of disguising personnel coverages either. That's that's part of my issue. And I think you know when we get to talk about Minka Fitzpatrick, if let's say Miami were able to draft him, you will be able to run a nickel, a big nickel, a base four three out of the same personnel groupings but you'll be able to confuse defenses far easier because you will not know where they're lining up and I think that's we haven't had that kind of x-factor player that can do those sorts of things um and part of that's down to coaching and part of that's down to Vance Joseph and Matt Burke but I think we just need to get better in those situations and it would certainly be a big help to get Kiko Alonso off the field in those situations or at least oh. have him stop oh, yeah. dropping you know it seems like his landmark drop on those on those spot drops is 10 12 yards back down the field and I just don't know who he's going to cover at that length I don't know who he could no. possibly keep up with at that length of the field nobody yeah so as he's proven <laughs> exactly Joe so. Flacco about the only one <laughs> So here we are. <laughs> okay, Simon, i got one last question for you before we go over to the next episode and talk about the draft. Yeah. Now, the Dolphins are pretty cap-strapped. Obviously, Jarvis Landry's franchise tag puts them well over the mark where they want to be. So how do you see free agency playing out here? Is there a couple of names you can keep an eye on, or is it going to be very, very, uh, you know, in moderation, so to speak? I think it will be moderation. I think it has to be. I think you'll be looking at, you know, you certainly won't be looking in tier one or, or probably even tier two for, 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 for players, but there are, there are bargains out there. And we talked to, uh, about a couple of guys earlier on with, with uh, the center of Detroit Swanson and, um, you know, uh, and uh, John, um, God, my, my mind's gone blank, John Sullivan at the Rams. Uh, there, there's some linebackers I like in terms of, you know, some coverage linebackers, Kevin Pierre-Louise at Kansas City did a pretty decent job when Derek, Derek Johnson got injured uh, Josh Bynes of the Lions, a very good coverage linebacker, third down kind of guy. Um, Christian Jones as well of the Bears, uh, another kind of decent coverage linebacker. Um, I look at a guy like Alex Okafor, who was having a career year with the Saints before he, he damaged his Achilles. I wonder whether or not he could bring some some flex to that to that um, defensive end position. Same with a guy like a guy like Jerry Attitude with the Chargers is a guy who I find intriguing. Somebody who's been injured a bit. Um, but he's long and he's loose-hipped and he's a good rusher off the edge, but he's been sort of played a little bit with injuries. He's going to be a sort of tier three free agent that you wonder whether or not he's 26 and, you know, maybe just maybe there could be something there. Again, uh, box safeties we talked about and we'll talk about in the draft. Tavon Wilson of the Lions is a kind of a, a box safety that you wonder whether or not 
Um, you know, the Dolphins could do something with him. And then if we end up losing William Hayes, which would be a big disappointment because I think he played so well against the run. In terms of playing the run, uh, Shamar Steven, the Vikings defensive tackle, is a is a guy I find intriguing as a uh, as a guy, and especially let's say we do move on from Andamak and Sue, or they do trade Jordan Phillips, for example, you know, which I suppose is not out of the question. Someone like a Shamar Steven who, who may get sort of tier two money, but kind of one of those guys that is intriguing to me in terms of somebody who could potentially be a, a decent player down the line. So they're the kind of the, the sorts of tier three guys that I think we'll probably be end up like, end up looking at. I, I don't think we'll be looking at a, a Justin Pugh or an Andrew Norwell. I, I just think they'll be way out, of our, way out of our price range, essentially because of some of the bad deals that we've made. Definitely. And Simon, that's some fantastic stuff. And I really appreciate you doing this. Let's do a second part here. What do you say about that? Yeah, let's go for it. Again, he is Simon Clancy at Cy Clancy on Twitter. And you can find his work in Gridiron Magazine. That'll do it for this edition of the Lockdown Dolphins podcast. We're going to bring him back for another one talking about the draft. You guys can go ahead and listen to that episode right now available on Apple Podcasts. And speaking of Apple Podcasts, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review. And check out the other Locked On Sports podcasts for all the local and national coverage of your favorite teams. Give me a follow on Twitter at Winfield NFL. Follow the show at Locked On Fins and check out LockedOnDolphins.com. Lastly, check out at Locked On NFL's Twitter account as well as their Facebook page. We'll be back in just a second with another edition of Locked On Dolphins podcast with Simon Clancy, your daily dose for Miami Dolphins football.